Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Public defense has long been a fraught issue for Idaho's counties and judiciary, but the state has taken steps in recent years to address those issues. So how far have we come and how much more work is left? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Idaho State Appellate Public Defender Eric Fredrickson and Seth Grigg, Executive Director of the Idaho Association of Counties, join me to discuss recent changes in funding to public defense and what that means for Idaho. Then Alejandro Flores, hydrologist at Boise State University, discusses this year's drought and what it means for fire season and agriculture. But first, the U.S. Senate confirmed Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the United States Supreme Court on Thursday, with both of Idaho's senators opposing that appointment. Senator Mike Crapo said, quote, I have serious reservations about her judicial philosophy and willingness to interpret the law as written, unquote. Senator Jim Risch said on Thursday, quote, Judge Jackson's past rulings as a lone court judge demonstrate a commitment to make new law rather than interpret the Constitution as originally written. Additionally, her past pro-abortion and pro-labor union rulings make clear she will not decide cases before the Supreme Court in a conservative manner, unquote. The U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday passed a resolution to express unequivocal support for NATO as an alliance founded on democratic principles. Idaho Representative Mike Simpson supported the resolution, but Idaho Representative Russ Fulcher voted against it. It passed 362 to 63, with 143 Republicans voting yes. Independent gubernatorial candidate Ammon Bundy appeared in Ada County Court on Thursday on accusations of contempt for failing to complete his court-ordered community service. He argued that his travel for campaigning was community service. An Ada County judge sentenced Bundy to 10 days in jail for the violation and a $3,000 fine. On Thursday, Governor Brad Little went to Reed Elementary School in CUNA to sign a bill funding early childhood literacy programs in schools, which could include optional full-day kindergarten. We just wrapped up the legislative session and K-12 funding was increased by $300 million, the single largest increase in state history. That's 12.5% over last year. We also had Empowering Parents, uh, which were new grants that helped families uh, take charge of their educational expenses for their children. Uh, we've strengthened our ability to, re which this is really important to me, to recruit and retain quality educators by giving them up to a 10% increase in pay along with bonuses, plus affordable, and I can't stress this enough, high quality health insurance. We add an additional 47 million uh, which will mean that in the last three years we've increased literacy funding five times, five-fold. And it's an accomplishment that I'm very proud of. Our number one goal as kindergarten teachers is to instill a love of school and a love of learning. This bill makes that goal much more feasible. Funding all day, everyday kindergarten allows us the time to meet all children at their individual levels 
while still keeping our instruction engaging, interactive, and fun. Each year we have students that come to us having no idea how to hold a pencil, while others come to us reading, and of course everything in between. Some students come to us from families that have the knowledge and time to work with them, while others come from homes that are unable to support their children academically for various reasons. Having been in all-day, everyday kindergarten classroom for the last four years of my 19 years of teaching, it has been a complete joy to be able to see what we have been able to accomplish with all levels of students. It's primary season and the Idaho debates have also announced the first four confirmed debates of the year. Republican candidates for lieutenant governor on April 18th, Republican candidates for attorney general on April 19th, Republican candidates for superintendent of public instruction on April 25th, and Republican candidates for secretary of state on April 26th. All air live at 8 p.m. Mountain Time on Idaho Public Television. We hope to have more debates to announce soon, including the one for governor, once incumbents confirm their participation. Visit IdahoPTV.org slash IdahoDebates for more information. Public defense is afforded to defendants in criminal cases and some civil cases if the person cannot afford an attorney. All people have a constitutional right to counsel, and under previous Idaho law, the costs of that appointed attorney were left to the counties, in other words, an unfunded mandate, which created strain for county budgets, public defenders, and defendants. In 2015, Idaho reports traveled to Nez Perce County to take a look at that workload. The Sixth Amendment is a part of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. They're very important uh, issues, and they were important to our founding fathers because of the struggle they went through with the British. It's a lot easier to see yourself owning a gun than finding yourself as an indigent defendant. I think that is the problem. In Idaho, I think we've been, uh, had kind of a tenure of, you know, we're gonna punish you. We're, you know, we're, we're gonna, to the maximum. And by revisiting those crimes, what's listed, um, I think that would help lighten the load and be able to deal with them as, a, as a, an infraction and maybe even more administratively uh, would definitely be appropriate and would provide more um, time available for uh, the public defender on misdemeanors and felonies. So I think our probation is way more difficult for our clients to be successful at. And I almost see that we're setting some of these people up for failure in that probation system. Because again, a comparison, Washington has guideline sentencing, Idaho does not. So the public defenders in Washington are representing that person for the one year on probation. The public defenders in Idaho are representing that person for five or seven years on probation. So it, it, there's a significant difference between the penalties and how the Department of Corrections in both states are approaching it. Well, the legislature believes that these decisions are made better at the local level, and I think what they're talking about is making the hiring decisions uh, better able to serve the community. But the problem is that this is not a local issue. This really is a state and federal constitutional issue. Uh, the locals have to deal the hand that's dealt them. They have to use the tools that they're given. Uh, they have to make sure that they're going to hire the right people, the well-qualified people. But the commissioners don't always have those skills. So they have all the responsibility and absolutely no authority here. 
On Thursday, Idaho State Appellate Public Defender Eric Fredrickson and Seth Grigg, Executive Director of the Idaho Association of Counties, joined me to discuss recent changes in funding to public defense and what that means for Idaho. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Eric, I wanted to start with you. Seven years later, what is the state of public defense in Idaho? Well, in 2014, um, the Public Defense Commission was created. Um, since then, we've been able to infuse, um, I think it was $11 million this year for workload money um, into the counties. We have uh, 36 workload attorneys that were added to the counties. Um, and we have the 10 principles of public defense. Um, so we have a significant improvement in public defense over the last seven years. How does that compare to other states? Um, Idaho's really been a pioneer with public defense. Um, the, the case we hear about is Gideon versus Wainwright. Um, that was 1963. Um, Idaho actually provided the right to counsel as early as 1923. Um, so we're 40 years ahead. The 10 principles we've, we've been able to over the last seven years um, supplement those and, and I think we're one of the first states to actually do that uh, for public defense. No, but there there still have been some county to county mm. issues. Seth, I want to bring you into the conversation. Can you explain how House Bill 735 addresses that issue and how it shifts funding? Yeah, so counties, if we go back to prior to 2014 when the Public Defense Commission was created, counties were the ex exclusive provider and payer of indigent public defense in Idaho. And at that time, uh, counties were spending roughly $21 million a year uh, on, on public defense-related expenditures. You fast forward to today, and between the state dollars that are coming in and the county money that's, that's spent, uh, it's upwards of $45 million uh, that are spent annually on, uh, on public defense. And for, for the counties, their share of that you know, it varies uh, excuse me, varies depending on, on the cases and, and the amount of workload to be done, but it's between 33 and $35 million a year that largely is funded by, uh, by property taxes. This bill is significant because it creates a dedicated non-property tax funding source for public defense in Idaho. And so we will see counties moving forward reduce their property tax budgets to account for these new dollars coming in. And so over the next two years, uh, instead of property taxpayers paying for it, uh, there will be a, a sales tax distribution to counties that will provide the funding to counties. Now, the impact will vary county to county. Uh, in some counties, you know, there, there isn't as much population, there's not as much workload, and so there won't be as much of a property tax reduction there. But in larger counties like Ada County, uh, there will be upwards of a $9 million reduction in property taxes, uh, which if you look statewide, the average is between five and, and 6% a year in property tax savings, which for Idahoans who are struggling with rising property values and inflation and other factors, that's a significant reduction of, of county property taxes. And so we, um, we have long been exploring ways to provide property tax relief here in Idaho. And this is really the first bill that provides direct property tax relief to Idahoans. But in addition to that, it fixes a really important problem with how public defense is funded in Idaho. And I want to circle back around to property taxes because that's been such an important topic for so many Idahoans. But you know, while, while we're still on the public defense part of this, what does this change mean for the public defenders themselves? Well, <clears throat> I think we're going to continue to have an improvement in public defense. Um, we'll have more consistent training throughout the state. Um, we don't know what the system is going to look like yet. 
Um, but we are going to have state oversight. Um, the state's responsible for providing public defense. Um, so we will have state oversight. We'll still have standards um, and more consistent training throughout the state. Do you think it will improve the quality of defense that defendants receive? Absolutely. Um, that's the goal, and that's that's been the goal of the legislature and the governor's office um, for the last seven, eight years. Um, and quite frankly, since the beginning, Idaho has always been in front with public defense. Um, the, the question that Seth and I are going to need to talk about, and it's something the governor's office is going to work on, is putting together a working group for public defense. And so uh, a group of experts that can decide what Idaho should look like. Um, we know what other states have done statewide, uh, but Idaho's unique and we're going to do it our way. And we're going to have an improvement in public defense throughout the state. Can, can you talk <clears throat> about the changes to capital defense? Because you know, the majority of the workload for public defenders is what we talked about earlier in the show, right? The criminal and some civil issues, but for, for the most part, or criminal, sorry, but, but a very small percentage of those our capital defense. Can you talk about those changes? Absolutely, uh, that's an excellent question. So, so capital defense is unique, and, and, the, and you'll always hate, hear people say death is different, um, because death is different. We, you know, it's, it's final um, once the case is over. And so the goal is to have two attorneys on those cases. You have a mitigation expert, you have an investigator. Um, the problem is in some of these smaller counties, you don't necessarily have access to two capital defense attorneys. And so as we develop the system, um, there, are, there are a number of different options to, to deal with that. But one thing you can do is you can have a capital team or a capital unit that travels around the state for these smaller counties in the event that um, these issues arise. And that requires special training. It's, it's not the same kind of training mm. that most public defenders receive. Absolutely. So with capital cases, most of the training is done out of state because um, that's where the majority of the experts are for capital um, defense. And the attorneys have to do 12 credits of CLEs um, every couple of years to be qualified to do capital cases. So, you know, I think an important point that Eric made is the impact that it has on rural counties. Um, you look at uh, a county like Fremont County right now that's dealing with uh, two uh, a significant murder case with two defendants and they're going through process right now uh, but that is very expensive for a small county like Fremont County to handle and we see that time in and time again around the state where a small county will deal with a capital case and uh, going back into the to the to the 90s that's why the legislature and counties created the capital crimes defense fund um, because without that assistance you have the potential of bankrupting uh, a really small county and so this really will will provide uh, significant relief and, and help for our rural counties across the state. And what is that capital defense fund? So the legislature created the capital crimes defense fund and, and think of it almost as a uh, as an insurance program essentially um, where each county is required they're not required but there are some incentives in statute for counties to participate in the capital crimes defense fund so every county in the state annually contributes to this fund and when there is a capital case 
the, the fund itself will cover half of the, you're required to have two defense attorneys, we pay for half of that. Um, the other benefit that it provides to the counties, and this is where the real cost savings comes in, is that any appellate work that's done post-conviction is all done by the state public defender's appellate public defender's office, which is a, a significant savings to counties, and that's really the reason and the motivation for counties to participate. And you brought up uh, an important point that I want to touch on about how these counties are so different. You know, of the 44 counties in Idaho, we have everything from Ada County to Clark County that has fewer than 1,000 people living there. Will this change from House Bill 735 help every county equally, or are there some that benefit more than others? You know, that's a really good question, Melissa. If you, you can look at it, I guess, from two standpoints. One, you've got a, a service that's provided by the county. And certainly the rural counties, uh, I, I would argue, stand to gain the most from House Bill 735 from a service perspective. Uh, those are the counties that struggle to contract for attorneys or hire attorneys, so they don't have the, the pool to pull from. Um, and so this will markedly improve public defense in those, those rural communities. If you look at it from a, a perspective of a, a property taxpayer and the savings that a property taxpayer will, will see, you're probably gonna see more of a, of a savings in the urban areas of the state, which you know, tend to spend more on public defense and other services. And so uh, it, it really depends on how you look at it, but from a taxpayer standpoint, uh, and I live here in, in Ada County, um, I'm certainly going to, to see that on, on my tax notice this next year, as will all the other uh, residents of Ada County. Um, and so that's the, I think the, the beauty of this bill is that you know, it, it helps the taxpayer, but it also helps the state and counties in solving a really important policy issue. From the taxpayer perspective, is it enough property tax relief? You know, that's something that, that policymakers have been debating uh, for the last few years. And, and the legislature, uh, dating back to last year, have made uh, a number of significant changes with House Bill 389 last year that Im imposes additional budget caps. This session, this was the only real significant property tax relief bill. Um, and again, if you look at it from your, your county tax bill, for example, if you look when you get your tax notice, you'll, you'll see a number of line items. You'll see the county, the city, special purpose districts. Um, and what this will do if, if in fact each county you see that, that savings, your tax bill that you pay to the counties will go down five to, to six percent. Now the county is gonna raise their budget potentially up to three percent um, under the, the current budget law, um, but that's less than the savings and so you should see a net decrease in the county property taxes you pay. Um, but that's only a fraction of the total tax bill. If you look at, at the average tax bill in Idaho, about a quarter of that is to the county. The other three quarters uh, goes to these other taxing districts. Um, and so you're, you're going to see property taxes increase as a result of that. Um, and we're, we're hopeful that the legislature will continue to look at ways to provide meaningful property tax relief. And we think this bill serves as a very good model for that. Um, to really take a look at what are the, the essential mandated services that locals have to provide and come up with a dedicated a funding source for those services so that we can save taxpayers. Um, because really at, at the county level, we don't have a lot of options because much of what we do is statutorily required of us. And so it's a question of, you know, do you raise property taxes to pay for that or is there an alternative funding source that could be used? Um, another one of the items that you know, we've been talking with legislators about for the last several years is to simply grant counties the authority to provide 
property tax relief by giving us other authorities, for example, a, a local option sales tax um, that could be used to raise the sales tax within a community, but then dedicate those sales tax revenues to reducing the property tax burden on taxpayers. You know, we've talked a lot about the legislative side of addressing public defense issues. There is also uh, a lawsuit, um, Tucker v. Idaho, that alleged that Idaho's public defense system was inadequate. Um, Eric, you are a party to that lawsuit. You inherited that with your job that you were appointed to in 2016. Can you give us an update on where that case is? I, I can tell you it's set for trial um, coming up the spring of 2023, um, and that's about it. The Public Defense Commission continues to work on improving public defense um, while we're in the process of developing this new system. So, What needs to happen <clears throat> next? Well, I think we're going to sit down this summer, and the governor's office is going to put together a working group um, of experts to identify the, the issues that, because Idaho is so difficult like we've been talking about today, we have big counties and small counties with only a handful of cases. And so developing a system <clears throat> will take some time, but that's what we're going to work on this summer and hopefully have something for the legislature this next year. All right, Eric Fredrickson, <clears throat> Idaho State Appellate Public Defender and Seth Grigg, Idaho Association of Counties Executive Director, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, thank you, Melissa. If you've been paying attention the last few months, you know we've had an awfully dry winter. Here to discuss the state of water in Idaho is Dr. Alejandra Flores, hydrologist at Boise State University's Department of Geoscience. Leho, thanks so much for joining us. What's the state of water right now? Thanks a lot, Melissa, for having me. This is a question that I have seen come up in the Twitter sphere and elsewhere a lot. Um, and, you know, I have to be honest with you, right now it's not great. So there are four things that I'm looking at right now that I took a look at today. Um, one is the precipitation um, that's fallen in Idaho thus far in the year. Two is our snowpacks, where are they at in terms of that natural reservoir of water? Three is the storage of water in our actual reservoirs. And then four, what is the outlook over the next couple months? Um, and in all of those, it's um, a mixed bag to worse. And so from a precipitation perspective, um, for example, in the Boise River Basin right now, we're at about 85% um, of what we would receive on an annual year for this time of year. So that sounds okay, but then when we pivot to, to how much of that is in the snowpack, right? How much have we retained in snow um, at this point in the season? It's not looking quite as good. And so right now, in terms of the snowpack in the Boise River Basin, we're at 62% of where we should be this time of year. And in a historical perspective, we're in about the 10th percentile. So this is already shaping up to kind of not be a, a great year from a snowpack perspective. Then if we pivot and kind of look at, well, how much water is stored in our reservoirs right now, because um, that's that's what ultimately we will use later on in the summer to irrigate crops. Um, there, it's it's a mixed bag or, you know, close to being at, at pretty um, pretty significant lows. And so um, Arrow Rock is, is fairly full. It's at about 89%. On the other hand, um, Lucky Peak is at 55% and Anderson Ranch at 40%. If you go over to the eastern part of the state, it, it gets even a little more bleak. Um, Jackson Lake is about 22% full, and um, the Upper Snake in general above Palisades is about 38%.
Um, I don't think that it's going to get a lot better in terms of the precipitation story. So I, I don't anticipate there's going to be a lot more water coming in um, into Idaho in the next few months. We're just entering this time of year where it's usually pretty dry and pretty warm. Um, and so I looked at the Climate Prediction Center, what they're looking at. Um, we're probably going to have, you know, they're expecting us to have relatively average temperatures, but it looks like we'll be average to below average precipitation over the next one to three months. You touched on this a little bit, but what does this mean for Idaho Ag? Yeah, so, you know, those those reservoirs of so the snowpack goes into the reservoirs and the reservoirs are kind of really what we use um, to irrigate the, the crops in the Snake River Plain in the Treasure Valley over the course of the growing season. And with the reservoirs being, um, you know, half full or not that full, and the snowpack being at sort of fairly historical lows at this point, um, it looks like we might be in a pinch later on in the season. And of course, that's really going to depend on, you know, what the temperatures look like, right? So if we get a big heat wave early in the season, like we did last year, that drives up the demand of water um, from the crops. And if we don't have the water to meet that demand, you know, then we have to start either harvesting early or just sort of letting things go fallow. And of course, I think we're all concerned about fires, no matter where we are in the state, big implications too for how dry our forests might be. Yeah, absolutely, um, especially on the snow side, right? The, the Really the snow melts and then it goes into the soil and then you know it's conveyed down into our rivers and streams. And so if we don't have the snowpack or if that snowpack is melting quickly, um, we don't have the water that's in the, in the mountain soils um, that the that the trees and shrubs can rely on into the into the summer season. And so, you know, I do have some concerns that some of the forests might be entering this period where the trees are stressed earlier than they typically do this year because of that kind of lack of snowpack. Are there some regions of the state that are in better shape or is it kind of a bleak situation everywhere in Idaho right now? Yeah, right now, um, the the northern part of the state, so more in the panhandle, appears to be a little bit better off just in terms of, of snowpack. Um, but the southern part of the state is, is all pretty universally low on snow, low on flow, low on reservoir storage. Um, and, you know, the where there is kind of forecasts for sort of potentially higher than normal temperatures is in kind of the southeastern part of the state where, you know, there's significantly higher chances of warmer than average temperatures over the next few months. And so that would be maybe one part of the um, of the state that I would kind of keep an eye on, especially. We've talked about this snapshot in time with, with the last few months and the coming months. With the changing climate and warming trends that we've seen over the last several years, is this something that we just need to get used to in Idaho? I think it's something that, you know, we as a state should start having, you know, truthfully some, some more discussions around drought mitigation, drought adaptation, how we manage our water resources, because I, I do unfortunately think that years like this um, are, are going to be, you know, happening more frequently in, in the future. And so anything we do to put in effort to build out drought resilience, build in drought adaptation in our communities, amongst our infrastructure, amongst our economic sectors, things that we can maybe do to be creative in 
banking water or, or storing water, things like aquifer storage and recovery. We should be thinking about that now because I, I do really think that, you know, we this is the start of what we expect to see going forward. We have less than a minute left, but I know that water infrastructure has been high on the list of priorities for the Idaho legislature. What specifically would you like to see? I think that um, really where we need some innovation is frequently in the in the policy sphere and just sort of allowing for more innovative collaboration between water users and water managers in the future. Um, that could make potentially really big differences with not a lot of big infrastructure. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Alejandro Flores, Boise State University, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for watching. You'll find so much more of our coverage online. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.